1: That's stamps.com. Code Program.
3: Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you've missed any of my Talk Radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast, the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy.
4: Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio
3: after the Intelligence and Security Committee saw a, uh, well, a rigged election, rigged by the government, that they still managed to lose. Uh, The government decided that they wanted their own chosen candidate to chair the committee which oversees uh, the work of MI5, MI6 and GCHQs. formerly led uh, by Dominic Grieve. Uh, Well, they failed uh, to spot a secret plot to put a fellow uh, uh, Tory MP, Julian Lewis, uh, a defence specialist, a former chair of the Defence Select Committee, uh, into that job with the support of Labour and the SNP. Well, the Prime Ministers decided to strip the whip from Julian Lewis uh, last night for going against the whips. But what are the implications now for that committee and indeed the publication of a crucial report on Russian interference into UK politics and indeed government policy on way Well, let's talk about all of this with someone who knows what it's like to be both uh, the chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee, but also to have the whip taken away. Dominic Grieve joins us now. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Um. Why do you think the government wanted Chris Grayling to chair that committee? And why do you think they're so upset that Julian Lewis has got the job?
2: I've no idea why the government has behaved in the fashion that they seem to have done. This committee runs itself pretty well. It's a non-partisan committee. If you went in and sat in on a meeting... You wouldn't know who belonged to which political party. It gets on quietly with the job of doing the scrutiny of the intelligence agencies. It tries to publish reports, many, much of which are often redacted. Lots has to be taken out, but nevertheless tries to keep the public informed and the government informed of how it thinks our agencies are performing. Uh, and it gets on with that job, um, as I say, without trouble. So why to introduce into this a highly politicised move which seeks to firstly determine from outside who the chair of the committee should be, when the statute which sets us up makes quite clear it's for the committee itself to decide who's the chair, Um, and then to react so angrily when the committee shows a degree of independence and decides that it wants a, a different chair, which it's fully entitled to do, and actually elects a chair who is plainly very competent and has past experience. And one could well understand why Julian Lewis
3: was chosen by the committee. Well, well, I is, have to say one is, thing: what people couldn't understand, I think, was uh, a lot of people couldn't understand why Chris Grayling, uh, former Transport Secretary, but not a man who's been, shall we say, there's not there's not much enthusiasm for his competence in certain various areas. With all due respect to him, he's not he's not a, 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 high, a the most highly respected MP in the House of Commons in terms of his ability in, oh. in office. Uh, in which case, um, big question marks about why he was chosen. Lots of people thought that he was a something of a government patsy.
2: I'm not, I'm not going to comment on, on, on Chris Grayling's candidature. If the committee had wanted to have Chris Grayling as its chair, well, then so be it. But the committee didn't. Um, and it's the committee's right to choose its own chair. It's worth yeah. bearing in mind that in the days when the chair was nominated by prime ministers, there were occasions when, in fact, the chair was an opposition
3: MP. Which shows, shows how government... non-partisan it was. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, so, yeah. what are the what are the implications of this? Because for lots of people, I say, well, I don't know what this committee does. This is very important. It's actually a very powerful committee because it scrutinises such important issues in terms of, you know, the the work of our our intelligence agencies, people who are trying to keep us uh, safe from uh, uh, the terror attacks and and uh, obviously internationally as well. There are implications for this in terms of first of all, looking back, the Russian report. Now, this is a report into Russian interference in UK politics. Big uh, big row ahead of the general election about the. Failure of the government to allow the uh, the publication of this, they basically said, "Well, the committee's not sitting, so we we're not in charge of it. We've got nothing to do with it." But uh, you and I, you and I spoke a number of times on this show uh, about how the committee wanted to publish a report and it had been ready for some time, but was not able to.
2: Yes, the the, the Russia report was prepared by the committee. The committee finished its work in early 2019. The report went through the usual redaction process, very properly with the agencies and was ready for publication in the middle of October of last year when Parliament was still sitting. And it was then submitted to the prime minister because the prime minister has a final veto, but it's a pretty much a formality and it's normally a rubber stamp. And for reasons which have never been explained, Number 10 and the prime minister decided they were not going to allow this report to be published uh, when parliament was sitting. And it has to be published when Parliament's sitting. Once the election was called, it could no longer be published. And the result of that is we've been deprived of this report for nine months. It's not just a report about elections. It's a report about the threat from Russia generally. Uh, And like all other reports, I can't comment on its content. It's, I think, a sensible report put together by a cross-party committee of experienced MPs. But the consequence is that we've been deprived of it. It's led to massive speculation about the content. Um, And there is now going to be an opportunity, now there's a new committee, for it to be published. I don't know if we'll get it before the recess. Um, I, I accept that the new committee needs some time to consider it, but I hope that we will see it soon. But again, just like this row over the appointment of the new chair, this is a form of sort of toddler politics micromanagement uh, of the committee's work. And I don't understand the government's motive last October in creating this row, which was entirely made by the government.
3: Um, and just finally, do you think there's an aspect of here about of Huawei? Because we know that Julian Lewis uh, is among the many Tory backbench MPs who want the government to go further than their, uh, their policy on Huawei now in terms of stripping it from the uh, role in the 5G network by 2027. Uh, he and other MPs uh, want Huawei out you know, pretty much immediately.
2: Huawei, the committee was doing a report into China when it was interrupted by the election last year. And as a preliminary to that, and because it knew that this was going to happen, actually brought out a short report on Huawei in the summer of last year, 12 months ago, which I think was quite informative and made the point that there were two aspects to this. One was technical and the other was geostrategic. And I have to say that having made those points, I wasn't altogether surprised that 12 months later, the geostrategic has finally triumphed. And we've announced that, in fact, we're not continuing to use or will not continue to use Huawei parts in the future. But whether that's got anything to do with the row with Julian Lewis, I'm afraid I can't comment. I simply haven't any idea. All the point I can make is that the government is behaving in a very strange fashion. It is manufacturing and creating rows and rumpuses where, on the face of it, I don't see why there's been any need for them at all.
3: Uh, can I also ask you about the Twitter hack uh, last night, uh, apparently by Bitcoin scammers, in which the uh, multi-billionaires, you know, the Bill Gateses, the Elon Musk, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and others also Apple, Uber, and also prominent politicians uh, uh, Barack Obama, Joe Biden were all hacked. Always oh, the blue tick accounts, the, uh, uh, those verified accounts. Uh, and uh, the, the Twitter said it was a coordinated social engineering attack, uh, which uh, control was Taken uh, of highly visible accounts, they had to suspend uh, various accounts to deal with it. Um, basically, there were there was tweets out basically saying, "If you send me a thousand dollars in Bitcoin, I'll send you two thousand back." Uh, and some people did fall for it. But um, but, I guess we spoke to little earlier. Was pointing out it looks like it is, may have been possibly the work of a of a politically motivated state operator rather than someone trying to make money. That if you can hack into Twitter, there are much easier, quicker ways of making money. Um, do you think that there may possibly be a political or state actor behind this?
2: It may well be. We know that state actors do hack and do masquerade as um, as if they were hackers. Um, it, it's done very regularly. There's, been, there's, there's, there's ample evidence of it. And it's not just confined to one particular state.
3: Um, I mean, presumably, obviously, there will be uh, a very high level uh, investigation into this. But given that one of the most powerful men on the planet, Donald Trump, the American president, lives on Twitter. um, It's interesting that his Twitter account wasn't hacked. But again, I mean, someone could uh, hack in and, you know, declare war on China or Iran, could they not? I mean, this is a hugely serious security breach.
2: There's no doubt that, yes, it is a security breach. Um, the, The Internet is under almost constant attack from outside actors, some are criminal and some are state actors, uh, with a view of trying to take control of it or manipulate it. This is a a big issue. All I can say to you is that we're fortunate in this country that the National Cyber Security Center that we have, which is set up, it's an offshoot in one sense of GCHQ, but it's their public face uh, to the public world and, and the private sector, is extremely competent uh, at at trying to address some of these issues. But it's absolutely right. It is a a rather lawless area out there, Um, and it can be manipulated and abused by foreign powers. That's one of the reasons why we have intelligence agencies. It's also one of the reasons why we have the Intelligence and Security Committee.
4: Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. Talk Radio.
3: Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.
4: Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. Talk radio.
3: Right now, uh, let's uh, talk more about this with uh, Sir Ed Davey. He's MP, of course, and acting leader of the Liberal Democrats. Good morning to you, Sir Ed. Good morning. Good morning. Um, just, just first up, I mean, there's quite a lot I want to talk to you about. First up, talking about this uh, independent uh, inquiry, you've been calling for an independent inquiry for a long time. Why do you think that it should start now, though, rather than when we've actually got through the business of keeping people alive and keeping our economy going?
5: I think you can do both at the same time. Most of the people who are treating the patients in our hospitals, uh, those hero NHS and care workers, Uh, they're not going to be involved in the inquiry. And even the officials in Whitehall, in Public Health England, um, the vast majority of those won't be needed in the inquiry. So this is a complete fig leaf of an excuse by the Prime Minister. He's trying to delay. I was delighted that in my question yesterday, I managed to get this commitment out of him on the floor of the House so that the first time he's given that commitment, there will be, uh, an independent inquiry and now we've got to make sure that it happens as soon as possible in the right form so I've written to him I've asked him if before um, parliament goes on holiday in the recess can he now give us a timetable propose the chair give the terms of reference and make it clear it will have the powers that you need for such an inquiry to get to the truth under the 2005 act the Inquiries Act which gives a very strong legal framework to make sure an inquiry can do the job that the public want. Let us remember, tens of thousands of people have lost their lives. Hundreds of thousands of people, families and friends are grieving. Our economy is a mess. It is completely reasonable that we have that inquiry and we have that as soon as possible.
3: Okay, but the trouble is, there'll be lots of people concerned that actually, if the government is focusing on back covering, which bottom covering, we know that's what they or every government of every political hue ends up doing. Everyone involved, and again, it's not just be the government that's going to perhaps have the uh, finger pointed at them. It's going to be senior figures in the NHS, uh, that senior figures uh, in public health England, and the like, um, and it is on the Sage Committee as well. Some of their advice Um, that they're not going to be focused on doing what they need to do right now. Surely a lot of the lessons that we need to learn are things like, you know, making sure we've got enough PPE, um, not not uh, uh, sending loads of uh, elderly people home from hospital to care homes without giving them, uh, uh, make, giving them a COVID test to check that they're negative. I mean, frankly, an awful lot of this was the bleeding obvious to most of us with half a brain. We didn't need to have any qualifications to know this. Um, those lessons have already been learned, haven't they?
5: Julia, uh, of course, all the things you've just said are right. A lot of it was, to use your phrase, bleeding obvious. But why did they not do it? Good question. <laughs> there has been a complete failure of this government. They have been oh, no 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 the NHS no no
3: the finish. NHS made a lot of those decisions and Public Health England don't, don't, made a lot of decisions as well. Do no. Boris no, no. It, no no
5: no no I'm, what, I'm, I've 10. been very are you critical. Pay at number ten, Julia.
3: Because Excuse me. Excuse me. How? dare you ask that question how dare dare you (laughs) i have been hey (laughs) well i'm sure they felt that when i was saying that dominic cummings should lose his job were not they um no i'm saying i've been very critical i had the health secretary on yesterday criticizing him about the lack of i'm delighted to hear
5: it i mustn't miss the program
3: Yes, you should should probably listen to my show. You'd probably learn more, sir. Um, But uh, no, I I speak as I find. I think the government has done a number of things wrong. I think they've done a number of things right. But crucially, we can't just say everything's the fault of the government. A lot of these were decisions that were taken by Public Health England or by the NHS. Now, that doesn't mean the government shouldn't have stepped in and gone, you're wrong or we're going to take the way. But there's going to be a lot of blame over a lot of different people. Well,
5: first of all, Julia, Public Health England answers directly to the Secretary of State for Health. It's the one part of the health service, the response to uh, the, the health secretary. So you're saying so, the NHS I
3: mean, is, doesn't? So you're saying, so you just made no, no, my no, point no, for no, me. no,
5: no, 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 let me help you out. There are parts of the NHS that are in an independent organisation. That is true. But Public Health England is the one bit that isn't.
3: And the NHS's the decision to send people back to care homes without giving them COVID tests?
5: Well, one of the reasons we need inquiry, Julia, is so we can find out who made that decision. Well, because I, I, I don't, I'm not. Do you know who made that decision?
3: Well, we've been told that it was the N- N- NHS that was well, an let's, NHS let's, policy. Let, let's,
5: well, let's find out who decided that policy, shall we? That's why you have an inquiry.
3: Yeah, I'm perfectly happy to have an inquiry, but I'm pointing out that the inquiry may point fingers at a lot more people other well, than it, just it, the it, government. And maybe, but that's why. So you you you've just inquiry. agreed with me then? Are you in the pay of know. the government, Sir Ed?
5: No, no, don't be silly. I mean, You're just being very silly now, Julia. Um, <laughs> let, let, let's get back to the reality. The reality is. Over 40,000 people have died. And there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, well you've
3: made that point.
5: Who yes. Are, who are, well, yes, but it's the p- point. It's why I don't want all this jokiness. This is a very serious issue. It's yeah. why I've been raising I, I'm it. I'm sorry. And, we, and our economy our is in real trouble. And we need to take this rather more seriously. And let me tell you one of the things that we're all taking really this me. very seriously. In, 20, Thank 2016, you very much. in 2016, the government held a simulation into what a pandemic might be like. It's called the Cygnus Exercise. The Conservative government held that right, quite rightly, and it concluded a whole set of things that needed to be done. Okay, And health ministers, conservative health ministers, and indeed the conservative prime ministers, were shown that report because it was a national security issue. How do we keep our people secure? And they were told from an exercise funded by you and me, the taxpayers, what to do. And it appears they didn't do it.
3: Yep, absolutely, and we are, when we will be holding those people to account. Let me also ask you about uh, the uh, government being held to account over the uh, whips taking away, or well, the, the Tory whips <laughs> taking away the whip from Julian Lewis after he stood against the government chosen candidate, Chris Grayling, uh, to be the chair of the new of the Intelligence and Security Committee. Normally, that committee chooses its chair itself. Government got involved. Julian Lewis basically used the uh, support of uh, SNP and Labour uh, members uh, to win uh, that chairmanship. He's now lost the Tory whip. Uh, what do you make of all that
5: well i think this is yes another example of boris johnson and number 10 um going to areas that they shouldn't do the the act of parliament that creates this committee and it's a very unique committee actually makes it clear that this is not a committee run by the government it is a committee that is independent run by the mps serving on that committee and the MPs were quite right to side their own chair and not have a chair chosen by the yeah, prime minister. That's what the law says. And for number 10 to turn around and take the whip from Julian Lewis, I think is quite disgraceful. Um, this is, and I hope conservative MPs, if they've got some guts, will say to number 10, to Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, this is not how you run a mature democracy, you do not flout the law and and, and override uh, independent committees, independent by Parliament. Are
3: you hoping to now see the publication of the Russia report? One of the first things that the committee was apparently going to do after being reconstituted was uh, to publish that report into Russian interference in UK politics.
5: I've written to Ju- Julian Lewis urging him to do that. Um, uh, when I found out uh, that he was now the chair, um, I was have to say delighted, because um, I think Chris Grading was put there to create more delays. OK, right. Um, so, and, so- and- Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app.
4: Talk Radio.
3: Uh, right now, though, let's talk about the new review commissioned by the Prime Minister yesterday into improving health outcomes for babies and young children. Uh, well, the early years' advisor Conservative MP, former Business Secretary Andrea Ledsom, uh, joins us right now to talk about that. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. I mean, it's interesting how much, you know, we're focusing so much at the moment on on the pandemic uh, and actually probably forgetting an awful lot of, uh, of, of, you know, what happens in terms of people's long-term health, how long they live and how healthy uh, their life is, is down to their very early years experience. What are you expecting to uh, actually come out of this uh, review commissioned by the Prime Minister yesterday?
0: Well, you're absolutely right, Julia, that um, for the very, very young, you know, this pandemic has really made, Things even more challenging for parents who, let's face it, often find the arrival of a new baby quite challenging. Um, What I'm hoping comes out of it is a real acknowledgement that in that critical early years period—the period from conception to the age of two—the lifelong emotional and physical health of a baby are pretty largely determined in terms of their capability and capacity. So the very earliest experiences, which are so closely linked to the experiences of the parents, are very profound at that age in life. And so it's part of the Prime Minister's um, levelling up agenda, but also the coronavirus recovery agenda is to really focus on giving every baby the best start in life. and It is one of the very,
3: very sad things, isn't it, that what happens in those early years health-wise and education-wise is absolutely crucial. And this, of course, is when uh, you know, mums and babies, other than the midwife trip and the possibly you know, trip to the GPs and getting vaccinations, can often have very, very little contact with people uh, who can actually offer them help.
0: Well, during lockdown, that has certainly been the case. And I know that there is a concern from many in the early years sector that there will be a a raft of parents. We we already know, for example, that one in five mums experience postnatal depression and one in 10 dads. So there's already a challenge. But if you can imagine being in lockdown, perhaps without any outside space and maybe with job worries and a new baby, that is a pretty toxic cocktail of challenges and so this obviously this this review isn't just about that this is about a much bigger look at how can we ensure that for every family they feel properly supported whether it's just that they're lonely and feeling fed up or whether they have really key questions about weaning breastfeeding why doesn't my baby sleep and so on or whether they're more profound with issues of domestic violence or substance. Use or perhaps yeah. not speaking English. You know, all yeah. of these things can be extra challenges for new families. Well, no, as you say,
3: especially during coronavirus, have noticed that, you know a lot of mums who, uh, you know, new mums, saying that my child's not been able to meet grandparents. You know, haven't had the support of their yeah. mum or or your parents-in-law to to just offer them a little bit of help. Can't you know? Can't get a babysitter. Uh, a lot of that isolation. And I've say for me, I mean, remember you know my my daughter's uh, my maternity leave, my time with her. That was just. I've got to be honest, she, one of the best times of my life. I had a wonderful bunch yeah. of friends. We still got on holiday. With one of the other couples. Our kids, are, you know, have birthday parties together. And, you know, and, it, and it's such an important part of, of your life, uh, you know, starting that new stage. Not to have that support is really, really hard. But we also know, quite apart from just, you know, how mum feels, how happy you are, and the financial aspects of all that as well. Um, it, it, We know that this has long-term effects, don't we, in terms of outcomes for a child, in terms of their education, in terms of how long they live, how healthily they live, and yeah. every other aspect of their lives can yeah.
0: follow from this. That's right. I mean, it is those earliest experiences, even in the womb, if mum is very, very stressed for whatever reason, money worries, relationship worries, then that can lead to low birth weight. It can have you know, very long-term implications for the baby. Uh, The baby can be born um, as a baby that cries a lot and struggles to settle, and that can add to further stresses. So those earliest experiences for many, many families are just great, and most parents are just good enough and everything is fine. But for those babies where parents are deeply depressed or have major problems of domestic violence or um, substance misuse actually that baby very often is the one who will go on themselves to perhaps have a higher risk of being taken into care of perhaps joining a gang of longer term mental health problems and so on so very often the problems in our society we can really see that they stem back from the earliest experiences of the baby so we need to do much more to provide that critical support to families not to interfere but where families are crying up for help We need to be able to give it to them.
3: Can I also ask you about something we're obviously going to put to the Business Secretary, Alex Sharma. You previously in that job. We expect the Prime Minister tomorrow to announce that he wants people to sort of work from home if they can, but to go to their office if they can, getting people back to work to uh, basically get our city centres moving again, people spending money, restaurants, cafes, bars uh, and in the shops. Um, Do you agree that people should now, where they can, go on public transport if necessary and get back to their workplaces?
0: Well, I absolutely do agree. I mean, but the the issue that we face now is that our economy is completely struggling to get back up on its feet. And we desperately need that economic activity to return. Otherwise, we have put in store for ourselves some very long term debt problems for the nation. And of course, that, in one sense, that's not any individual's problem. But, of course, if, a, if an economy gets into long-term high-debt problems and interest rates go up, you then end up spending a lot of your um income from um, taxes on interest on the debt rather than on public services so we desperately need our economy to get up and running we need people to um, get back to their jobs all safely and i know that allox the business secretary has put in place huge amount of guidance for businesses to be able to get going safely again and we really do need business managers and owners to use their ingenuity and creativity to find a way to reopen safely and to find find products and services that customers will want to buy.
4: Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio.
3: Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Here's a cool fact.